In a Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast by Paul Meyer on the Spoken Word. Episode number one, February 2018, Shakespeare's Original Pronunciation. Hi, this is Paul Meyer. Welcome to my podcast, In a Manner of Speaking, something I've wanted to do for a very, very long time. And now that I'm Professor Emeritus, retired from the theatre department at the University of Kansas, a post I've held for 30 years, I have a little more time and uh, can embark upon this podcast series. I plan to do one a month, releasing them on the first or second of the month. And with the exception of conversations with colleagues, interviews, which might extend to 35, 40 minutes, my solo podcasts are intended to be about 20, so very listenable too. And I want to explore all kinds of topics from the vast field we might just call the spoken word. And before I dive into this week's topic, Shakespeare's original pronunciation, let me list some of the other topics that I hope to address in the coming months. I think about one in five I would love to devote to a conversation with a colleague. I've gotten to know a great many interesting and accomplished people over my career, and some of them have already kindly consented to uh, a conversation with me. I have uh, promises from David Crystal, Eric Armstrong, Amy Stoller, Jim Johnson, just a few of the many interesting people I've worked with. David Crystal, I'm sure you know, is one of the world's leading linguists. He has published over 100 books. He is without uh, an academic affiliation and has been one of those very rare breed, the freelance linguist. He lectures and, and talks and writes on just about any aspect of linguistics you could care to mention, but my involved with involvement with him has been with Shakespeare's original pronunciation. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet what we will talk about, perhaps pragmatics, or perhaps some more original pronunciation. Eric Armstrong and I have collaborated over the past 30 years extensively. You perhaps know our interactive IPA charts, which you can find on my website and on his and in different forms as apps or CD-ROMs. I think we're going to talk with Eric about his current fascination with indigenous speech and dialects, the speech of indigenous peoples. Amy Stoller, one of the most successful and prominent dialect coaches in New York City. She's an idea editor, as is Eric, and has contributed Samples to the International Dialects of English Archive, IDEA. And I'm looking forward very much to a conversation with her on a topic yet to be decided. Jim Johnson. We might talk about OP. He's one of the several dialect coaches who are getting involved with original pronunciation. The The movement has been somewhat held back by the paucity of the number of, of, of coaches proficient in it. But Jim Johnson is one of one of the several that I'm pleased to say have jumped into the into the field and uh, now works with OP, as does David Alan Stern, perhaps another colleague I would love to interview. So about one in five of my podcasts will be conversation with very, very interesting people 
like the ones I've mentioned. Another topic that fascinates me, and I'm really looking forward to to researching this a little further, is what I'm calling the sound of spontaneity. It, it must have occurred to you that what we value in actors, even though we know that they are working from a script that they've memorized, is is the apparent, uh, the appearance, the illusion of spontaneity, the illusion that the thoughts have been birthed in their brain in that very moment, discovered and uttered in that very moment. And yet um, we suspend our disbelief about the, the script aspect. Now, the necessity for the illusion of spontaneity is, is different depending on the genre that you're working with. When we hear someone read the news to us, uh, we have no desire to believe that this is freshly minted out of the newscaster's mind. We we know they're reading. They're news readers. Here's the news, read by so-and-so. Um, so we don't need spontaneity there. Some commercials um, that uh, we actors have to engage in, some of them are, are almost indistinguishable from monologues and require that absolutely fresh in the moment sound to them. Um, others are more announcery. They're more sort of corporate spokesperson and we want that feeling that the message is being read. Audiobooks. Do we want to, to believe that the narrator, Jim Dale, reading the Harry Potter books is, is making this up? No, we know he's not making it up. We know that it's, it's not his work. It's, it's not, he's not the author. And we know it's a book. We might have read the book. But even though we, we know that, we still require freshness and getting it off the page, as we say, in the business. And here's another thought that's often occurred to me. I don't know if you've ever tried to transcribe the recording of a, a spontaneous, unscripted interview or, or speech. A speech that you might have well understood when it was delivered orally, but when it's on the page, it suddenly becomes opaque and, and difficult with all those false starts and the changing of thought um, midstream. Uh, so we know that that literary writing, complete with complete sentences, subjects and predicates, and grammatical punctuation, we we're used to that. We are sort of tyrannized by by the written word, and forget that in a, in in more oral societies, pre-literate societies, the, the the rhythms and phrasing of real speech was what people were used to. Fascinating stuff, and I'm going to write about that. Idiolects. That's a term that you may never have heard. Uh, everyone knows what a dialect is, you know, a variant of a language regionally or by gender or by profession or socioeconomic class, but an idiolect, what's that when it's at home? Well, it's the, ter the term like idiosyncrasy or idiom. It's the, it's the way each person speaks their own personal dialect. I'm fascinated and always have been by the fact that uh, siblings, for example, growing up in the same house, subject to the same influences, often end up with completely different sounds. And clearly we're all unique human beings with unique self-images, unique images that we want to present to the world, and we develop not only... Uh, a pronunciation, but vocabulary and, and construction that 
that is our own footprint. My brother and I ended up uh, speaking completely differently. And I've often thought that perhaps we don't apply that to theatre and film work as much as we should. I have grown increasingly disenchanted with dialect plays where everyone seems to have their speech formed from the same cookie cutter. I remember I was doing Crimes of the Heart where the three McGrath sisters are uh, you know, subject to exactly the same influences. They all grew up in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. But yet they're, of course, being the product of a playwright, completely different characters. And so for the very first time then in my dialect coaching work, I made a concerted effort to give them idiolects. And I want to write and talk more about that. Audiobook narration. A segment explored both from the practitioner's point of view and from the listener's point of view. I've been involved in audiobook narration all my life uh, since I since about my first gig with the BBC many, many years ago. I was hired to do their book at bedtime, and it was my great honour to read Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, giving character voices to all 14, 15, 16 characters. I've uh, remained involved with that, and uh, I've always been fascinated by it. How to help the listener know exactly who's talking without feeding them too much information, without it going into too deep a characterization, but giving just enough for the for the listener to be able to, to create those pictures in their minds. I'm going to do that fairly soon because I'm uh, working with a favorite actress of mine, Julia Whelan, who has uh, narrated hundreds of audiobooks. I first met her as a, as a film actor when I was coaching her in in uh, Pennsylvania Dutch for uh, an Amish film. Uh, but uh, she sought out my help because her first novel that she's narrating herself is is called My Oxford Year. And it's it's set in Oxford, England. And there are many, many British characters in there that she wants to just to get absolutely spot on with their accents. I've been working with her. That book and uh, the... Um, the audiobook version comes out in April, so I want to explore that before her debut novel is published. And uh, just one more topic before we get into Shakespeare's original pronunciation. And uh, it's the rather arcane question of whether parents prefer to give their children names that are iambic or trochaic. It's struck me for a long time that the vast majority of two-syllable names that we bestow upon our children are trochaic, dumdy, you know, with the stress on the first syllable. Harry, Billy, Susie, Roger, Peter. And uh, the bestowal of iambic names, Celine, Celeste, Pierre, is somewhat rarer. I'm going to do some research and find out if that is true, and if it's true, whether it, obtain, it obtains across broad uh, demographic lines or whether particular subgroups of our society prefer trochaic or, or iambic. I think it's probably true to say that of the uh, number of two-syllable words in our language, I, I, would, I would hazard a guess that most are, in fact, trochaic. And this seems at odds with our addiction as an English-speaking race 
to iambic pentameter, to iambic verse. We compose iambic verse, with the stress on the second syllable, out of what may turn out, as a result of my research, to find is a a, a dominantly trochaic language. So if music be the food of love, play on. That's our very, very favorite, you know, ever since Chaucer. We've, uh, we've loved the, the delayed stress of the second stroke. Da da, da da, da da, da da, da da. If music be the food of love, play on. And we very rarely compose verse that is trochaic. So my theory, to be, uh, corroborated by my research is that in this dominantly trochaic language of ours, English, um, we prefer trochaic names for our kids. And my feeling about the trochee is it's, it's, it's insistent, it's aggressive, it's, it's declarative. Harry, my son, Harry, where my, uh, my, my, my son, Pierre, sounds a little l- more lyrical, perhaps. So is it to do with the different feel of trochees versus iams? I have a distant memory that uh, Greek war poetry was was composed with that insistent first syllable stress. It's a little more aggressive, a little got a little more punch to it. Pata, tata, tata, tata. Instead of the heartbeat, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum. I guess it's a good question whether the heartbeat is in fact iambic or trochaic. Depends where you start counting, doesn't it? Anyway, look forward to a little whimsical podcast on the metrical feat we give to our kids. So, after those appetizers, now to the entree, Shakespeare's original pronunciation. I've chosen this topic for my first podcast, uh, mostly because I'm in the middle of coaching the Orlando Shakespeare Theatre's all-male production of Twelfth Night, which opens February 21st, 2018. And uh, I wanted to let you know that in case you're in the Orlando, uh, Florida area, that you could you could catch that show. Orsino's opening lines from that play will sound something like this. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting the appetite may sicken and so die. That strain again, it had a dying fall. Oh, it came o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets. Perfectly understandable. 400-year-old language, a 400-year-old dialect, early modern English, and as you can hear, the consonants are fairly much the same today as they were then. There are a few consonantal differences, but mostly it's in those vowels that the language has shifted. Instead of surfeiting or surfeiting, they said surfeiting. And instead of die, it was day. Instead of strain, strain. Instead of dying, it's dying. Instead of fall, it's fall. Sweet sound, sweet sound, sweet sound. Instead of breathes, in the 16th century, towards the tail end, they said breathes. Bank, violets. You can find my transcription of that uh, on the webpage that you clicked to get to this 
podcast. Have a look at that if you're phonetically inclined. I have an entire page on my website devoted to Shakespeare and original pronunciation. Uh, Lots of free downloadable material there. But if you're not familiar with the concept of original pronunciation production, let's let's, uh, spend a little time on it. I first came across it in 2005. I was in Stratford-upon-Avon. I was giving a master class at the Shakespeare Institute there for a month, and in my lunch hour I strolled across to the little bookstore across the street from the Institute there uh, on the main street, and found a little book called Pronouncing Shakespeare. Author, David Crystal. I, I think I devoured that book in one sitting. It was a perfect convergence of everything I'd been interested in my entire life. Shakespeare and dialects, and here was a guy who purported to know how the Elizabethans spoke their English. This magical time travel back to then by by linguistic research to find out the, the shape of their vowels. I made up my mind there and then to uh, to get to know David and to do a an OP production sometime. The next year, 2007, I was back in Stratford and invited David to be a, a guest speaker. He gave an all-day workshop there, and he was the, the hit of the master class that entire month, uh, certainly with me and, and, and with with my students as well. I got to know him, and we uh, started to hatch our plot to work together, and that resulted two years, three years later, in my production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, with with David uh, leading the charge. We transcribed with David's uh, eagle eye upon the project. We we transcribed the play into OP. Uh, you can download that on the on the website. David recorded every line. You can uh, click the 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 audio tracks in that PDF and hear David's uh, reading in OP of every line of the play. The play was a big hit. We did it as, a, as we made it as a uh, a high definition video, uh, a radio version, and of course the sta- the stage version. And it's perhaps been the highlight of of my directing and coaching life. I've done a handful of, I've I've coached a handful of of op Shakespeare productions since, and culminating in my current work with the Orlando Shakespeare Theatre. An all-male production, as I said, with the um, artistic director, Jim Helsinger, playing Malvolio. It's going to be great. Do attend it. So in uh, in the few minutes that I have left here, just uh, let me answer the very big question that everybody who's new to OP asks, how do we know? You know, no tape recorders. Well, the easy answer, and it's kind of obvious when you when you hear it, is that much of the evidence comes from three different sources. The rhymes in the plays and poems, and the word play. You can gather a lot by uh, rhyming couplets that clearly rhymed then, but no longer rhyme, uh, rhyme now. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved is the f- final couplet to uh, to one sonnet. Loved and proved certainly no longer rhyme now, but they most certainly did then. So the linguist's job is to find out if it was 
proved and loved or proved uh, uh, and loved or, or some other vowel. And uh, that's, that's where the work starts. Uh, and our best guess, 95% accurate, we are sure, is it was proved and loved. If this be error and a pun may proved, and never writ nor no man ever loved, proved and loved, a perfectly respectable rhyme. So there's the rhyme evidence. Then there's wordplay evidence. Uh, there's one wonderful punning moment in Henry the Fourth, Part One, um, where Prince Hal challenges Falstaff to give him a reason for something or other. I've forgotten exactly what they're debating. Give me a reason, says says Hal. And Falstaff says, Reasons? I'll give no man a reason upon compulsion. If reasons were as plentiful as blackberries, I would give no man a reason upon compulsion. Well, that's a kind of a feeble pun until you find out that reason was pronounced raisin. And so we have raisins and raisins as homonyms. And so we can make that pun. A lot of that wordplay in our modern pronunciation just uh, disappears. It's just befuddling to an audience. But the wordplay is a big part of the evidence for how the words were pronounced back then. Second big deal is that there were many scholars at the period writing about pronunciation. Uh, many of them were writing from an orthopistic point of view, correct spelling. So correct spelling, correct pronunciation sort of went hand in hand. And so their account of how the language was pronounced is vastly helpful in this linguistic sleuthing that we do. And uh, fortunately, the concept of correct spelling had yet not entered the culture. And so you'd get a letter from a, an un, a distant uncle across the other side of the country. And in, his, in reading his letter, you could hear his accent. People spelled much as they spoke. And uh, I think it's a, a shame, in a sense, that spelling has been regularized. But it does give us uh, a lot of evidence for for the contemporary pronunciation. Why is it so easy to understand? Very easy to answer that. Consonants have changed very little in 400 years, and consonants convey meaning. I, I, I could start to speak to you replacing every single vowel with the same vowel, with no differentiation of vowels. And you'd still understand, courtesy of the consonants, exactly what I'm saying. So vowels are not essential to understanding. That's why we can understand dog or dog, completely different vowels. As long as we hear the D and the G, we can infer the uh, the vowel between. So that's why it's so easy to understand and why production companies have so little to fear from an OP production. The audience... If they misunderstand, it's not going to be because of the accent. It's going to be the other usual suspects. Poor acting, generally. Poor speaking, generally. If they don't understand, it's not going to be the fault of the original pronunciation. So OP can very proudly join the list of other original practices, musical instruments, costumes, staging, and take its place proudly 
among the other original practices modalities. Okay, I've gone a little over my time, out of my enthusiasm for the subject, but if you're anywhere near Orlando in uh, in February and March, do attend their production of Twelfth Night in rep with Shakespeare in Love. It's going to be a great evening at the theatre. So that's it for today. Please join me next month for my next In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs> <laughs>